Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. My name is Jonah Haddad. I'm a missionary serving with Reach Global. That's the international mission of the Evangelical Free Church of America. My family's been serving in France for a little over a decade now, doing church planting work and outreach in that, uh, in that area. So we're currently on a home assignment, uh, one year here in the States. It looks like that one year is going to turn into a little bit more than a year uh, with everything happening currently with the pandemic, with COVID-19. A lot of things have, have changed for us. And I imagine a lot of you can relate as well, uh, going into a time of, of uncertainty uh, economically, looking at your future, looking at your work, looking at your plans. So that's gotten me thinking um, quite a bit over the last couple of weeks about this idea or this notion of hope. What is hope? What are the things we hope for as human beings? I look at my own life, uh, entering into the month of June right now, I had hoped to have a little bit more clarity on my future. I had hoped to have a little bit more certainty about what I was going to be doing, about my ministry moving back to France and Paris. Uh, I had hoped to have more information. As I look at my family, my kids, I think they were hoping to have finished the school year a little differently. Uh, They were hoping to have more time with friends, more face-to-face time with with, uh, friends here in the States. There are a lot of things we're hoping for right now. Um, I hope COVID-19 comes to an end very soon. I hope that the economic impact on people in this country is not too severe. As I look at the current circumstances right now, uh, we're seeing cities burning, we're seeing injustice going on. I hope these things come to an end. I hope there's reconciliation. I hope there is healing that comes about. I hope our churches are able to reopen soon, that we can gather again together face-to-face. And we're all hoping for different things. We've all hoped for different things in our lives. The thing is, though, that hope often disappoints. Hope often disappoints. We talk a lot about hope. We're often talking about desires, wants, wishes, right? Our, Our hopes are little more than dreams, to pursue with varied degrees of success. Our hopes are often translated to nothing more than wishful thinking, right? That serves to to comfort us, but really nothing more. It's not grounded in anything. But the kind of hope we see in Scripture is something much more than this. Christian hope is founded in something sure, right? Something real, something true. Hope of this kind encompasses what we long for and what we desire, But it's more than that. It transcends time. It transcends our current circumstances. Hope of this kind is written in God's sovereign plan, ordained according to his mercy, brought to fruition through the work of the living, resurrected Christ. That is biblical hope. Biblical hope is living hope. And that's what I want to look at this morning with you. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles. I hope you have a Bible in front of you. Turn to 1 Peter. We're going to be reading 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. And here the Apostle Peter is addressing churches in Asia in the first century, churches that had seen a lot of, uh, well, trials, difficulties. 
And so he's offering them this word of hope. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray before we go any further with this study. Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, that by the power of your Spirit, you would illuminate the meaning of this text to us today, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would speak to our minds, that you would remind us of where our hope truly lies, We ask, Lord, also that you would bring hope to the community, that you would bring hope uh, to this nation, that people would truly understand what hope is, that living hope, true hope, comes from Christ. So, Lord, we ask that you would guide us in this study today. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me give you uh, three brief thoughts on this concept of living hope today. The first thing we see in this passage is that our hope in life depends on our hope in Christ. Our hope in life depends on our hope in Christ. This is what we see in verse 3. A lot hinges on how Peter defines hope. A lot also hinges on our object of hope, our source of hope. And so the first thing we need to understand is that hope founded in Christ is not a guess. It's not a wish. The expression living hope denotes an active, ongoing confidence or expectation that is expressed through faith and whose object is Christ. So our hope is certain because it is grounded in Jesus Christ. Because Christ was raised to life, we have hope of everlasting life with him. This is not just a future hope. This is hope for now. This hope is guaranteed. It's not something that might happen. It's something that has happened. It's something that is happening. Now, the grammar of verse 3 suggests something, like I said, that has happened in the past, but that has an active continuing result in our present lives. So the actualization of living hope is logically prior to our full appreciation and experience of that hope. In other words, the hope is there. We just kind of have to catch up to it a little bit. We have to grow into it. Through faith in the midst of trials, we come to a full appreciation of it. The hope is already there. 
The new birth that God awakened in our lives or caused to take place, as we see in the text, extends into the present, into the future, in a kind of continuity. So really what Peter is saying here is that hope is an objective state in which we live in Jesus Christ, regardless of whether or not we're fully aware of it. It's already there. The hope is in Christ. Now notice in verse 3 how new birth into living hope parallels the resurrection of Jesus into life. We see this idea of living hope, so this idea of life. We see this idea of the resurrection in Christ, uh, new birth, this kind of thing. It's all tied together. The language of this ties it together. The life-giving power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in us. So the issue is not whether or not we have hope, but to what extent uh, we allow the hope giver to lead us into the kind of joy mentioned in, in, in verses 6 and 8. The hope is there. The hope is there. We just have to understand and, and grasp it. So what this tells us is that, the, that there's no guesswork. There's no wishful thinking involved in our hope. Our hope is certain. It's grounded in Christ. The whole point of verse 3 and the verses that follow is to link the work of God's power in Christ's resurrection to the work of God's power in our lives. We can depend on this hope because the one who transmits this hope is dependable. Now imagine for a moment that you want to try to cross a frozen lake in the winter. You're at Evergreen Lake. There's a layer of ice on the lake. You want to cross the ice. You want to get to the other side of the lake. Now you can wish that the ice would be thick enough to hold you. You could suppose that the ice will be thick enough to hold you. You might guess that the ice is solid enough. But that's probably not going to be good enough, is it? Now, suppose that your friend is standing in the middle of the, of the lake. He's jumping up and down on the ice. He's reassuring you. He's already crossed back and forth a dozen times. He's measured the thickness of the ice. It's perfectly safe. Now, that changes things a little bit, doesn't it? In the same way, Jesus Christ has gone ahead of us. And if your Lord and Master, who has been raised to life by the power of the Holy Spirit who sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven, reigning in all authority, if he has gone before us, that might be somebody we want to listen to. That is our source of hope. So when we place our hope in ephemeral, fleeting, chimeric kinds of things, our hope will fail us because that kind of hope stands on a tenuous foundation. But what Peter is telling us here is that in Christ, the foundation is sure. We have a real living hope. Now, the second thing we see in this text pertains to the actual content of the hope we have in Christ. The object of our hope is Christ. The content of our hope is the salvation that he gives us in new life. So we have an inheritance. Notice that in verse 4. We have an inheritance that does not fade, that does not decay, that does not perish. We have a treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. The inheritance, the content of our hope is nothing less than the eternal life made possible by Jesus' death, by his resurrection. And since Jesus Christ became 
sin for us, in order to justify us before the Father, we have received the benefits of his righteousness imputed to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Because he lives, we too shall live. Because he is righteous, we too shall be made righteous. Because Jesus is the faithful son of God, we are given sonship that comes with inheritance. An inheritance that never fades. This is the content of our hope. Now, when I was a kid, my great-grandmother passed away and left our family, my family, a small inheritance. And in my small, childlike mind, I imagined this inheritance to be a pile of treasure, gold and jewels and all kinds of antiques and, and things like that. And I remember this one day that this truck pulled up in front of our house to deliver our inheritance. And I was waiting for the back of the truck to open up and to see all these jewels and gold. And instead, when the back of the truck opened, there was sitting there a deep freezer, a freezer. And I thought, okay, well, that's okay. Maybe the treasure is inside the freezer. So the freezer was, was offloaded from the truck. We opened it up, and there inside the freezer are dozens, if not hundreds, of Tupperware containers filled with frozen berries. Our inheritance was frozen berries. I didn't like this too much. I wasn't too impressed until every week berry pies started showing up on the dinner table. So over the next couple of years, I got to enjoy berry pies. That was my inheritance from my grandmother. Now, the point of this is that our inheritance in Christ is even better than a year's supply of pies, okay? Our inheritance in Christ is imperishable, we read in verse 4. It's undefiled. It's unfading. Our inheritance in Christ is God's power manifested in our salvation. By God's power, Christ lived a sinless life, endured the cross, bore the sins of humanity, was raised to life, defeated death, and has transferred the benefits of his work to people of faith. That is an, a beautiful, beautiful inheritance. Now, this concept of inheritance in Scripture carries significant theological import. In the Old Testament, the birthright or the inheritance was to be passed to the firstborn son. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, there are laws that were written so that the people of Israel knew how to properly distribute inheritance, the father's possessions from the father to his offspring. In Genesis chapter 25, we read about Esau. You know the story of Jacob and Esau, these twins. Esau despised his birthright, we read. He traded it to his brother Jacob for a bowl of stew, a bowl of soup. Now, this birthright that he traded away was much more than just an inheritance of earthly wealth. But in the Old Testament understanding of, of the birthright, it seems that this inheritance was really connected to the blessing of God, his covenant relationship with his people handed down from Abraham to Isaac, then to Jacob and to his offspring. It was more than just earthly wealth. It was a relationship with God, a covenant kind of relationship with the Heavenly Father. So 
So when we understand inheritance in this context of the Old Testament, it makes more sense when we read this term in the New Testament. The idea of inheritance in Christ, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, speaks of this. In him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We have received an inheritance. The text goes on to say that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance. So again, this idea that we have received something passed down to us through Christ. In Titus chapter 3, we read that being justified by the grace of God, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We might become heirs. Again, we've received inheritance in Christ. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 15 speaks of this as well. Therefore he... Christ is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So notice how important this concept of inheritance is in Scripture from Old Testament to New Testament. Something transmitted to us, given to us by the Father through Jesus Christ. The content of our living hope is manifested in this inheritance of salvation. And so this brings us to the final point I wish to make, which ties the living hope of our salvation to our expression of faithful obedience in the midst of trials. Verses 6 through 9. Verses 6 through 9 appear to convey the idea that the expression of living hope through faithful obedience requires us to surrender our trivial earthly, self-supplied, and self-supported desires to surrender these things to God. In other words, God, or hope in God is better than hope in man. Hope in God is better than human wishes, human desires. The fact that living hope can sustain a believer through various trials and the testing of faith indicates its divine origin. Mere wishful thinking cannot sustain us. Mere human desires cannot sustain us. Living hope, according to Peter in this passage, living hope is not about us, it's about God. The only way a person can truly rejoice in the midst of trials is if the object and source of their hope is infinitely more powerful than the trials that they face. Now keep in mind, in verse 6, the object of our joy is not the trials themselves. The idea is not that we derive pleasure somehow out of trials, out of difficulties. Rather, we rejoice in the opportunity to trust God through trials and to delight in his glory even as we face uncertainty in the day-to-day. That's what hope is. We rejoice in the presence of Jesus in our lives and in the end result of our faith. So the focus of verses 6 through 9 is on the concrete, on the activity of God, not on the speculative. So Peter here is speaking of this 
fateful, decisive activity of God, which is manifested through divine demands on our lives, requiring our urgent obedience and the alignment of ourselves to God's activity. Our hope is connected to the eternal God and his timeless purpose. Our past regeneration, our current trials and faith, our future salvation, these are all tied together to an eternal God, chirologically. From the Greek word kairos, meaning God's decisive timing, according to God's eternal purposes. What God is doing through eternity affects what God has accomplished in Christ in the past, which affects what God will do in our future, which affects how we should live in the present. Verses 3 through 9 of 1 Peter call us to a change of perspective in understanding what hope truly is. Because when we think about hope, are we thinking about the right kind of hope? Are we looking at the right thing, looking in the right place? Are we failing to see God's activity as if looking through an improperly adjusted lens? Now, I don't know a whole lot about photography, but I do know when I've seen a poorly executed photograph. Sometimes you see these photos where the lens just wasn't adjusted correctly and things are blurred, it just doesn't look right. If you're using the wrong lens, or you fail to adjust that lens correctly, you can very easily capture some useless details in the background and fail to to pick up in, in your image the important thing in the foreground. That happens in our lives sometimes. We miss the obvious. We miss what God is doing today because we're looking at some future thing, some arcane thing that's disconnected from our reality. We worry about trivial problems while failing to recognize the eternal stakes of the bigger questions. We miss God's activity in our lives because we're too worried about our desires, our wishes, our dreams, our plans, our schemes. You see, living hope in Christ is not about what you hope you're going to be doing at some future time. It's about what God is doing in your life today. It's not about your future, where you think you're going to be, what you think you're going to be doing, what your plans might look like. It's about what God is doing today. Now, it's not wrong to ask the question, what's next? That's not what I'm saying. It's not wrong to look at next steps. What does my future hold? But a more fundamental question, I think, that springs from the living hope of the gospel concerns what God is teaching us about himself now. How that informs everything else that we do in life. I love the words to that hymn we sung it earlier. My hope is built on nothing less. I just want to read a couple of stanzas from this hymn that have really encouraged me. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Here's what Peter is telling us, and here is what this hymn is so aptly 
saying. Our fears and uncertainties are rendered powerless in the face of Jesus Christ and the hope that he gives us. The things we fear the most are the things we can't control. The time and manner of our death and pretty much every future thing, every contingency in the future. Keep in mind that Christ has mastery of both, both of these things. Our death, our future. Christ has mastery of the future. Do we trust that? Do we trust that the living Christ has mastery over everything in our lives? When we know the living Christ, we are born again into a living hope and the confidence and the peace that comes with that hope. Remember where your hope lies. Okay? Remember the one in whom your hope lies. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we are grateful for this word of encouragement written by the Apostle Peter for the edification of the church that we live in the hope of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you would bring hope to this nation, that you would restore hope in the lives of people who do not know uh, what true hope is, people who are suffering right now, people who are looking at the injustice in the world and not trying to understand how to live in that, how to resist it. Lord, I pray that you would truly help this word to saturate our hearts, help us to understand, not just with the mind, but with the heart, what it means to live in Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. We know that you are present, that you are living, that you are active in our lives. In Jesus' name.